welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, this is a bonus episode of Historically Thinking, and it's one of our occasional conversations with old friend Mark Salisbury, the co-founder of Tuition Fit an information exchange that aims to be the Kelly Blue Book of college prices. Today, we're going to talk about college admissions, applications, enrollment, and chat about various higher education headlines, including some about dormitories and cafeteria lines, which <laughs> that's college at its most essential. It's the that's dorm right. and the cafeteria. That's um, right. <laughs> so how you doing? How's, how's business? Business is great. Business is booming. Business is uh, a headache a minute. It's everything a business is supposed to be. But um, the Tuition Fit Project continues to grow. And um, it is amazing what a pandemic and an economic stranglehold can do to people's sense of worrying about whether college is worth it. Um, I We can get to this later, but no, this, let's get to this right now. What we, uh, both of us, I looked around, I asked you to look around for five or so news stories from higher education. I looked for about five or so, and I wanted to, uh, see what we got. But one of the things I got was enrollments still falling two years into the pandemic. Emma Whitford writing for inside higher ed, Emma Whitford, uh, the prophetess of doom and destruction. <laughs> Emma Whitford, tuition increases remain at historic low. So this is this is your world right now. It is. It is. They've been, you know, really paying attention to uh, enrollment numbers. Um, there was a CNBC headline. Uh, due to COVID, college enrollment saw the largest two-year drop in 50 years. Um, the only thing you could, I mean, was missing there is to cue the dun-dun-dun-dun. I mean, I just, you know, as you and I both know, college presidents are not exactly masters of the universe. I can just imagine some of them just sort of having to like reading that headline and having to sit down while they're sitting down and maybe mm-hmm. reach for that bottle of scotch they've got in the in the back corner, you know, uh, of the of the of the filing cabinet cuz yeah. That that's going to make them go eek. Mm. You know, it's funny cuz it's not necessarily uh evenly distributed across all institutions. Talk about Um, that. Well, when folks started paying attention to enrollments starting to slip a little bit, um, there was a sort of two ideas that sort of popped up. One was that, um, okay, really what we've got going on is an economic disaster. And when the economy goes south, enrollments at community colleges go up right? because people don't have jobs. So they're going to go and get some more education to be able to apply for a different job that they might be able to get and get back into the workforce. That's like a classic pattern, isn't it? I mean, this, that happened like the 91 recession, also like graduate, postgraduate enrollment goes up, that sort of thing. You got it, right? You don't have a job. So what do you do? You go back to school, right? Mm -hmm. Um. So that was one thing that folks said, oh, yeah, well, that, that'll happen. That's what's going to happen now, right? Um, and no, <laughs> that's not what happened. So what happened instead was 
we saw an overall drop in enrollment that was, you know, five, four, three percent. But for community colleges, it was like 15 percent. And so weird. some community colleges, it was like 35, 40 percent, like unbelievable drop offs in enrollment in community colleges. I want to underline a lot yes. of people like to say these days, yeah, maybe people don't really need a college degree, but they're not saying they don't need a community college degree. They're, they're people, a lot of the people that talk down a four-year degree talk up a community college. This is the worst of both worlds for everybody. So folks in community colleges were sort of throwing their hands up. Yeah. And what was really interesting about this was that all of the Nostradamus, I don't know what's a plural, Nostradamai, yeah. all of the Nostradamuses yeah, that's uh, of higher education out here were predicting that, oh, yeah, that lots of people go back to school. Well, we did see people, we, see, we saw growth in two areas. We saw growth in graduate school enrollments, yeah. and we saw growth in online for-profit universities. We saw this massive drop in community college enrollment. And um, it was pretty clear that there was a whole bunch of other stuff going on where this wasn't going to play out like it had in the past. Has anyone developed a, a hypothesis for what, what the hell is going on? A um, couple of hypotheses. One is that um, the stimulus money the money that people got sort of maybe they didn't have a job, but they got that money. So they were just going to ride it out looking at going to college, going back to school. Wasn't as pressing because they had something mm -hmm. Two, the specter of student debt has gotten to be so prominent. And the stories of so many folks who've borrowed money to go to college and then not been able to get jobs that helped allowed them to pay that back scare people away from the idea of going back to school without having all of the money to pay for school. And third, most community colleges had gone to online instruction over the past couple of years. Right. And those schools and a lot of public four-year schools went to online instruction too. But here's the thing that's really different. The, Online instruction that those institutions sort of switched to very quickly, honestly, wasn't all that great. It wasn't the AI-informed, individualized, really sophisticated online learning that is a you know, function of a lot of the for-profit or some of the really sexy online learning tools that are available now. These were your typical, well-meaning, middle-aged professors that were already, you know, sort of doing the thing the way they'd always done it. And then somebody said, oh, wait, in a weekend, you got to turn your course into an online course. Um, good luck. Yeah. Here's a Zoom link. Yeah. Figure it out. And so in a lot of ways, what became the online learning experience for most typical students was almost like the old school correspondence course delivered on a computer. And 
Nobody liked that. So now you see these surveys of students asking them if you would consider an online university. And a lot of them are like, can you, there's, can you give me an option that's not just no, but hell no, because <laughs> I'll take that one, right? The, the reaction has been pretty, uh, pretty powerful. And all of those things together, I think, really set the stage and continue to set the stage for folks aren't particularly interested in going back to community college um, until it's in person. <laughs> until it's I can pay for it without having to borrow a bunch. Yeah. And then till I can really see that going back for something is going to translate into a salary that made it worth it. Yeah. That all that that makes sense. So where are we uh what I'm gathering is also is that enrollment might be down like 2 3%, but things are good for you because of this so that people are being more, are people being, do you have a sense that students, parents, whoever's involved in the decision-making process is being more, are being more value conscious now? It was almost like that old fable, the emperor's new clothes, Mm. that spring of 20, no brother, 2020, was it when we actually really hit this thing and all of a sudden all schools went online, like over spring break, everybody said, we're going online. It was right after that, that suddenly there's all these parents that are paying the same. I mean, they've already written the check for the semester. Yeah. And now their kids in their bedroom online class And maybe mom and dad sort of walk by and see that essentially there's a professor in an old robe teaching on his his dining room table. And the dad goes, the mom goes, I'm paying 60 grand for this. This can't be worth 60 grand. It can't be worth twice what going to the regional public down the road is. Like it just can't be. And suddenly it was just this very strange moment where a lot of folks that probably had thought it for years but hadn't really said anything, all of a sudden out loud said, um, to quote the commercial from years and years ago, I'm not paying too much for this muffler. <laughs> like it was just like all of a sudden people like this is not worth the money we're being asked to pay for it. I don't care how many climbing walls and lazy rivers you got. It's just not worth it. And I'm not seeing this reflected in the Chronicle or inside higher ed very well. No, I guess I, I guess I wouldn't expect it to be. Wow. Because that's, that's harsh, but fair. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, I don't mean it like, as as harsh as it might have sounded, but I but I think you know for those those publications, their audience is folks who want things to go back to the way it was. Again, right? harsh but fair. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, harsh but true, right? Like yeah. if you, if you've been teaching courses for twenty years, yeah, and. You got it figured out to sort of the minimum amount of time necessary to produce and um, 
teach. And if you're at a big research one, you're just teaching enough to sort of placate that part of it so you can do research, which you can do from home anyway, right? Like all of this other stuff suddenly required a lot more time. And the time that and and learning in a whole new environment that you weren't used to. And in addition to that, you've got all kinds of students that are experiencing some pretty traumatic difficulty. And those difficulties translate into mental health issues that show up in your classes and in the papers that you receive and in the projects you ask them to produce. So all of a sudden you're being asked to sort of, you know, sort of be a low tech therapist at some point. And that's not what you were trained to do either. There's a whole bunch of reasons that, you know, folks who are in the academy who are they just wanted to get back to the way it was because that's the way the whole model's built. And um, I don't think that the Chronicle of the Inside Higher Ed is actively trying to tell the whole academy your business model is dead and we're going to do it differently. Um, that's, not not their, that, that's not part of their business model. No. No. So um, – so yeah, there was this funny spot like 18 months ago where all of a sudden the public just started to shift pretty dramatically and almost like throw the you know the the blinders off and say like this is crazy we're spending this much money for this thing. It's just not worth it. And um that certainly played into the tuition fit mission and what this project was all about, which was if we're going to talk about return on investment, then people have to at least know the real range of prices that they would be asked to pay at different institutions. Because if you're going to calculate ROI, you have to have the R mm-hmm. and you have to have the I. And without both of them, you're not really calculating anything. So, um, I was thinking that uh, co- the college admission process has become for middle class, upper middle class, upper class Americans, the closest thing that they'll ever have to a liturgical year, some of them. And uh, so where are we in the liturgical year? November 1st is a, it's been so long. Isn't that a big date? Yes. And what November is November 1st just came and went. Yes, um, I heard that. So all, It being all. the 5th when we record this. Yeah. <laughs> so November 1st just came and went and you can almost hear the exhale coming out of those um, gated communities and the independent education consultant industry who's been reading and editing and revi- helping students revise. You noticed I quickly corrected from saying the uh, counselors revising to saying helping the students revise. Sure. Absolutely. Yes. Indeed. Essays that they have to submit for all of these schools that they're trying to apply for early decision or what they call early action. Mm-hmm. And then November 1st is that big first deadline. Um, so there's this whole subset of the population that is sort of misrepresented in all the writing about college admissions. Cause it, it's the population that gets written about the most. It makes it sound like that's the way that everybody thinks about college admissions. It's just not that way, but be that as it may, we've just crossed that threshold where that first wave of applications have been sent to the IVs and the uh, faux IVs and the IV adjacent 
and the Ivy curious. <laughs> so that is the stage we're in right now. And and I believe your official opinion with like a stamp on it is that it's silly to do this. Silly to do early decision? The, yeah. Or early action, you mean? Yes. Yes. Early decision is – it's basically – I mean, the silliness is sort of grounded in 40 years of what we know about college students and that your success in life after college has very little to do with what school you went to. But the early decision thing is very much a – and we've, we've got a lot of research on this. The, the, the likelihood of getting accepted – early decision is higher than in regular decision. Uh But the amount of financial aid you would be given if you get in at early decision is lower Uh than the amount of aid you would get if you get accepted in regular decision. The reason for that is early decision is built on the idea that I tell you that I love you and only you, and I am pleading for you to love me back. And if you choose to love me back, I promise to forsake all others and come to you at whatever price you ask me to pay. So it's a pretty one-sided relationship. um, Yes. 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 (laughs) Yes, it is. Now, if you're a family that is um, bringing in a healthy six figures a year, and it's pretty important that you're able to have a sticker with, you know, a famous institution on the back of your car. Um, you don't really, you're willing to pay that money for the, the, the sort of trophy that you'll hang in the, in the den. But um, for the rest of America who doesn't have that, like most of us, um, those folks still get caught in this, I want to apply early decision and I sort of give up any leverage I have as a consumer and then feel obligated and swooning over this. Oh, I got in. Mm -hmm. I got to pay that. Uh, I'll figure out how to make it work. I will so that I can be there. And then this perpetuates what is, you know, $1.7 trillion in student debt and, a pretty horrendous completion rate, um, and more to the point, a growing cynicism about higher education generally, because the mm-hmm. rest of the public looks at it and goes, um, I've seen Shell Game, and that looks remarkably familiar. So what's the next important date in this litur- the liturgical year? <laughs> uh, there isn't one, but there yeah. is several. So. There's a November 15th deadline where some schools have decided that's their deadline. There's a December 1st. There are, (laughs) this gets to be like level of absurd. So just sort of hang on. Like there used to be just early decision and then regular decision. And then there was, well, let's do early decision, but not quite with the uh, handcuffs. We'll make it call it, we'll call it early action. So you can apply and you'll get a decision from us, but you could still look elsewhere, but you've just got an early early uh, decision from us, right? An, an acceptance. And then some schools said, well, you know what we'll do is we'll like have early decision one and early action one, but 
let's do it again because it was fun. And so we'll have early decision two and early action two. And then, you know, Toy Story three and Little Mermaid four. Um, so there's a number of schools that have several early decisions and several early actions and then regular decisions. Yeah. And of course, what we've seen now in several years that's been that's been written about some, but the more affluent, the more folks who've already had their parents have gone to college and they're already sort of higher up the socioeconomic chain, they know how to play this system and they have been prepping for it a lot earlier. And so they play it out in the early decisions and early actions and they get their spots. And then everybody else who's either late to the party because they're just late to the party or late to the party because they didn't know any better. Essentially, everybody who's supposed to benefit from the social mobility and economic mobility that comes from higher education, they find out later. They all apply regular decision. And I just want to be able to say that we we could have told you that. I mean, complexity is always a tax. Complexity mm-hmm. always benefits those with the most financial, emotional, whatever resources. Right. Um, the, the, the social capital and the and the cultural capital. Yeah. Right. Complexity always benefits the well-to-do. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so um, let's go through uh, some some stuff that we've seen. Um, yes. I got one for you, which I I'm sure that you also have on your list. It's in the Chronicle <laughs> of Higher Education, the small enrollment, small college enrollment playbook. Yes, I saw that. Uh, this is a enrollment expert at small colleges, and he let me just quote this one paragraph that will make you know some people in small colleges like sit up like eager retrievers who have just seen a squirrel. For small <laughs> colleges to thrive, they need to find a way to recover momentum in their enrollment quickly. A few small institutions have done this recently. Millsaps College in Mississippi brought in new enrollment leadership this year and saw a 56% larger incoming class for fall 2021 compared with the fall of 2020. Emory and Henry College in Virginia just enrolled its largest class in its 185-year history, up 63% from last year. Or my most recent institution, Sweetbriar College, editor's note, left for dead five years ago, where in two years, the incoming class increased by 80% and total enrollment by one-third. That's what I think of as a rebound, a dramatic pivot that jumpstarts a college's momentum in the right direction. Now, admittedly, some of this sounds like those those things you see on the skankier websites, like here's this one trick to use to lose belly fat or something like that. Over but, and over and over, yes. Yeah. But down, by the way, there's free Ginsu knives if you order. They're awesome. You can put them through a garbage disposal and they'll destroy the garbage disposal. Um, So what did you think of that? I mean, could you can we talk about that a little bit? Because this is like, you know, you're this is kind of where you lived for a while. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think I mean, so for every one of those colleges that had a great big rebound, there's a whole bunch of them that have not rebounded. No, and, no, that's because they're not doing this one special thing. Right, which this person doesn't really describe, I notice. Yeah. Um, it's also true that if you've had like the most precipitous decline ever, then yeah. it's really easy to rebound with some numbers attached to it and then get really excited. So 
um, the numbers for small colleges still end up being the same um, in terms of a couple of things. Even if you talk about how many more students you attract, what matters isn't necessarily how many students you got. It's how much money did you get? Because that's what's going to keep the lights on. That's what's going to keep paying your professors. That's what's mm-hmm. going to keep the college um, going, right? And paying off all that other uh, debt that they've accumulated over the years. So what I would love to know with all of those institutions is, is what did they do to start discounting? And what did they do to their discounting? So taking Millsaps, for example, um, they have a pretty healthy discount. And um, I can tell you from having seen tens of thousands of financial aid offer letters and scholarship letters over the last couple of years that the discounting practices are amazing, wonderful. Um, J.C. Penny looks like a curmudgeon compared to some of these. <laughs> um, but the negotiating practices after the first wave of financial aid offers is even more willing to discount again. So what used to be very rare that a college would say, yeah, you know what, in your particular case, we will give you another $500 in financial aid. Now what is the case is that college is sort of built into their model. The first offer they give you isn't the best offer they could offer. Mm-hmm. But they're going to offer you a price that's just above the average price that they want to get for students like you, from students like you. And they are expecting that a certain proportion of students like you will call up and say, wonderful, I'm thrilled, but I'm not sure I can pay pay this price or I'm not sure I want to pay this price. Can you find some more financial aid for me? And voila, in your back pocket, there's some change in the couch and you can turn around and say, you know what? We looked at your record again and we can offer you another $2,000. That is now a part of the practice. And if it sounds anything like buying a car, it's because it's like buying a car. (laughs) And so all of these institutions that got this big jump and more students, um, what I'd want to know is what is likely is that Mm. they went out very aggressively and they made sure that price was not an issue as best they could for the students they were trying to attract. He does not say that. He cuts off that they went out more aggressively, I I noticed. Mm -hmm. But uh, many of those things, I I have to say, this was like a, it was an article chronicled to appeal to all my priors uh, because it was, it was just, it was perfect. It hit them all. Uh, because mm-hmm. he was saying like, I mean, stuff that we've talked about, you need, you, you can't all be alike. You all have to be different. I mean, Sweetbriar is now as an all women's college, which is, as they said, five years ago, explaining why it had to close. It's 30 minutes from a Starbucks. Mm-hmm. That was what, but they, I think having, you know, been there recently and right prior to COVID they've, they've like, they've adopted that fact now that they're out in the middle of the country. You know, they're doing interesting things with that. Um, they're like, yes, we are on all women's college and we're proud of it. Damn it. And they're Mm -hmm. going, they're putting their flag on it in a way that, you know, 
a lot of other schools have gone co-ed because, you know, it's what everyone else is doing. Uh, so that, that reinforcing what you're, who you are is very appealing to me. So I, maybe I'm, I'm guilty of falling for that. Well, I think that there's, there's something, there's definitely something there. And there's a lot of folks that say the same thing about higher education institutions, that when the institutions can really identify their niche, which either means that they've already got one, they just haven't really figured out what it is yet because they've been right. trying to be just like everybody else, which is, you know, we can talk about the U.S. news rankings effect on homogeny another time. But well, uh, uh, no, we, we actually have at least three or, maybe three or four previous three times. Or four times. So I'll just put links to those episodes in the, in the show notes. But there are a lot of small colleges out there that they don't have a niche. And yeah. they've not really ever been all that interested in trying to craft one because they've never really been all that um, innovative. Well, now is the time you're going to have to be innovative and you're going to have to find a niche and then own it. Mm-hmm. And that's the way you're going to make it as a small college. And it's particularly true if you're a college under a thousand students. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, uh, what, what's, what's struck your eye? Oh, I, I've got a couple of them, but I'll, I'll just, I'll throw one out here that yeah, is trade off. Yeah. All right. Perfect. So there's been four or five of these in the past, I don't know, six months, but over the past month, there've been two different or three different, um, big releases. The last one was just this last week. I think it was. Uh, Wednesday, maybe the Gates Foundation released what they called uh, their well, they're calling it. I forget what they called it. Their um, equitable value something to us <laughs> to essentially assess um, the ROI, the return on investment at different institutions um, across the country for different types of students. Um, this has been such a prominent thing. You and I were just talking about it that now folks are really paying attention to value and return on investment for college. Um, a couple of months or a couple of weeks prior to that, um, a think tank called Third Way produced a uh, similar platform that they were, they were calling it sort of what's the, I think it's the price to premium was their sort of buzz phrase. But all of these different tools are trying to s- drill down to the level of the individual major at the individual institution and say whether going to that school for that major will ultimately produce a positive ROI or a negative ROI. And I have been a little loud about this, <laughs> but um, I will be. Uh, brief here and the only one so far that hasn't grossly overplayed their hand is the one from the Gates Foundation where they have said right out of the gate that no pun intended that we're really trying to be careful here that the data that we have really only allows us to sort of look at the ROI question through the lens of what the institution ought to assess about themselves and whether students of different types, like low income versus more affluent students or white versus non-white or um, uh, 
uh, male versus female, if the ROI is systemically different somehow for those types of those differences in students across in our own institution or across between institutions. And to just say, like, don't use this tool for stuff that's not intended to be used for. The rest of these tools have been coming out and saying, hey, we can tell you whether the ROI for a philosophy degree at school X is better than the ROI for a school for a philosophy degree at school Y. And the problem is that they don't actually have the data to say that. <laughs> they just flat out don't have the data to say it because the only price tag they know is the sticker price, price that the school advertises and then the average price across all of the students that go to that school. And they don't know the prices that the students of each major paid. And because the prices that students pay at individual institutions are so varied and they vary by specific criteria, financial need, and mostly academic merit, <laughs> academic profile, that students aren't distributed across every major in the same way that they're distributed across the institution generally, right? Mm -hmm. You have worked at, I have worked at institutions where certain majors were not known for their super rocket science, most brilliant students. Business. Communication. Where, oh, sorry. I, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> where the students <laughs> in chemistry were pretty well known to be some of the sharpest kids at the school because they because it was to be my major, right? Yeah, the, because it was chemistry, Mark. That's why that was there. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So the problem is, is that the students that were majoring in chemistry also likely to be receiving a lot of merit scholarships and therefore paying far less than the average price that every student paid. Yeah. And the business majors did not show up with these glowing academic profiles and therefore may very well be paying much higher than the average student is paying. So the problem with all of these different ROI tools is they're not able to take that into account, but they're just sort of blowing right by that fact and still making claims about ROI per major across different institutions that um, has potentially serious consequences because boards of trustees look at these things and start to grumble about certain programs that maybe we shouldn't have if they don't have a good ROI. And guess which programs that they tend to pick on because they show up as having negative ROIs? They tend to be smaller number of majors. They tend to be in the humanities and the fine arts. Mm -hmm. And we keep talking in our culture about the need for more students with humanities backgrounds and fine arts backgrounds and well-rounded liberal arts students and yada, yada. So um, this wave of research studies that have been written about, um, and of course, you can always find the clickbait articles of 30 majors with the biggest return on investment, blah, blah, blah. But they don't have the data to actually make the claims in the first place. 
So when will will we ever have the data to do that? Right now, it's not it's not permitted at the level of the federal government to collect data on the level of an individual student. So um, that's not going to happen at that level until that policy changes. Um, the tuition fit project was built on the idea of crowdsourcing that data to try to build that data set another way. Um, will we ever have every single price paid by every single student at every institution? Well, no, there's just no way that's going to happen. There are some pretty useful ways to take the data that we've gathered already and then sort of extrapolate. In oh, the I see. This is like a commercial to someone to come by your data set or, or rent it, take it for a walk or something like that. Take it for okay. a walk. That's yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Data walkers. Um, yeah. So, but, and there are other tools out there. There's other folks who have used, you know, sort of predictive analytics in some pretty smart ways to at least get a ballpark sense of the different kinds of prices that students might pay. Um, unfortunately, that's never been connected to then what those students actually chose to major in. Mm-hmm. So you still don't have all the ways right. to connect Just, this stuff because about, given about 75% of the people graduating from college are graduating in a degree field that wasn't what they had in mind when they showed up. Exactly. Is that, is that, did you just make that up? Or is that, is that actual pretty close to true? 75%? No, because I know it's, I know it's, I know it's extreme. Guy, when I want to make something up, I just do. Cause yeah. you know, yeah, that was, I could tell if, if you had yeah. said, uh, if you had said 73, I would have bought it. Yes. No, the, the data that the data that's out there, basically it, it splits up into this. About 25% of students show up to college knowing exactly what they want to study and then major in that field and and they go, boom, Freaks. Never, no change. Weirdos. Freaks. Yeah. <laughs> then about 35, 36%, 38% students show up to college and they're pretty honest enough, at least honest enough to say, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to major in. I just don't. I have no idea. Those students might, and often actually do, <laughs> indicate that they're undecided while at the same time listing off five other majors that they think they sure. might major in. But yeah, yeah. Setting aside the irony of being undecided and then picking a list of majors, they cl- they're willing to say like, I don't know what I want. Yeah, I, I always took this. I always took this to be during office hours, first week of college. It's like telling me the spots in the buffet that most interest them. Yes. Yes. Um, so. And then that third group, that other sort of third-ish, are students that come into college thinking they know what they want to major in, and then for one reason or another, that's not where they end up. It could be because they're totally capable of doing it, but they actually get into the nuts and bolts and hate it. Mm-hmm. They're totally capable and they like it, but they have a couple of professors that are a nightmare and they're like, no way, I'm never doing this again. Or they start in it and they tank academically and then have to choose something else because they clearly didn't really understand that if you wanted to be a doctor, you needed to understand anatomy and they couldn't 
keep all that straight. So, I mean, you're such a cynic. You completely left out the whole intellectual epiphany about taking the class that you didn't really want to take. And then you changes your life and you walk down to the restaurant and change your major. But that's okay. You've, you've seen all the bad parts of this, of Moss Eisley. You know, I honestly, so, I wonder uh, if there's like six people in the world room that actually happened. Uh, well, one of them's kind of talking to you, so a little bit. Yes. But there's, I, I, I know, I know of others. Um, a lot of them are professors, and that's one of the problems is that they they end up dealing with their their own their own not just anecdata, but their own anecdata. Um, yes. So yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah. it's a problem. Uh, I got a I got a story. Let's uh, let's uh, this is even more fun. I love this story so much. I want to send it flowers. <laughs> it's uh, from CNN. It's uh, about the brouhaha, if I might use that French phrase, at the U- University of California, Santa Barbara. Charlie Munger, who is approximately 387 years old, and yes. God asks him for a loan at least once a year. He is Warren Buffett's partner in investment. Is he, uh, is he a vampire? Is he actually a vampire now? He has donated $200 million to UCSB to fund dorms with a caveat that only his design is followed. Yes. It is an 11 story building. It has more than 4,500 beds. It's 4,500 single rooms exquisitely designed. I have to say into like sort of the most compact, wonderful sort of sailor's cabin you've ever seen right down to like a, Queen Mary and Dry Dock is what it is. It's it Queen is. Yeah. 11 stories. It will have, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, 14 fire exits. Yeah. Um, and the architect who is on the committee uh, has resigned in disgust. He said as an architect, as a parent, as a taxpayer, as a human being, as a member of this cosmos, he could not tolerate this nonsense Uh, all sorts of bad things will happen they're very bad unforeseen circumstances i can't foresee he says quote as the quote-unquote vision of the single donor the building is a social and psychological experiment with an unknown impact on the lives and personal development of the undergraduates the university serves okay charlie munger says hey we're going to have like artificial windows like you have on the disney cruise ship where like where the starships come in the starfish come in and wink at your children um, yeah. it's actually in many ways, I don't know how I feel about this ultimately, other than just really want to get the popcorn out and watch to see what happens because, um, there's parts of it that I really kind of like one is, is he is trying to keep costs down for one of the most expensive things that colleges build. Um, the, uh, there's a very, there is a clever psychological component. All the windows are actually in common areas. There are no windows in rooms. Right. Um, so that you sleep and you study or, you know, whatever, and you're in your little pod and then you have to go out to interact with people to have a social life. And th- there's something to that. You've divided the, I mean, they have divided each floor of this building into eight different houses, only holding 63 students, which seems a little small to me. And 
eight times that's eight times 11 88 houses in this building but it's it's has more in common with like the 70s idea of building these arcologies which mm-hmm. were going to be like a mile on a side on each side and which would hold all of la inside you know itself and it would you know we would do this for during the population boom and explosion when earth was like 20 billion people we'd all be living in these places charlie munger being 387 years old, remembers that and has designed one for undergraduates. And mm-hmm. I salute him. I salute him. He's actually only 97, I should say. But he does have enough money that God does ask him for a loan because God doesn't usually use money. He doesn't have to. That's <laughs> that's that's what I've got for us. So pull, getting out the popcorn, I think, is exactly right here because the the biggest thing is and the biggest fear in in higher education world, especially if you're a faculty member or sort of you know, somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of power. Um, the biggest fear is that the donors will suddenly completely take over, right? And this, you know, it was one thing and the stadiums were named, named after some big bank. It's another yeah. thing now that like the academic buildings aren't named after former academic uh, brilliance. They're now named after whoever the biggest donor is. Right. Um, so the, the donors would just completely take over the, the organization. And now it's not just putting a name on the building. Now it's I get to design it too, and it's built out of saran wrap, and because I love saran wrap, right? And so, so this is like a nightmare scenario for academics anyway, um, and for academia, and anybody who believes in sort of you know academic freedom, but in the form of I get to say what I want to say. Well, I mean, to be honest, I mean, with all due respect to academic freedom, it probably never included the right to control the design of the dormitory. We would have to work out a more, there's some more fundamental problems in the way that maybe colleges were governed that we got to this point. But it's like, you know, it's like, uh, this is what, this is the world which we created for ourselves. Um, it, it, it was a series of small, as a series of small accommodations. None of them seemed big at the time, and then we ended up with an eleven-story building for forty-five hundred students. <laughs> That's how it happens. Well, you know, the, the 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 rooms where you sleep in, they're very small. Yeah, and the idea is to just have the students don't spend any time in those rooms except to sleep. But they all get their own room, so they don't have to, you know. They do all get their own room. And um, but the people will be complaining because they're not the beds are like you know just single bed. What they're only singles. I mean, they at high point they get doubles. They get you know they get they get full they get full beds. You know, everyone gets their own. Uh, This is what's up with that. They only get this anyway. Go on. (sighs) No, it's this is this is an interesting one that's going to be. Uh, funny to watch, uh, but you know, in the end, it's it it may just end up being another one of these big train wrecks um, where it's a. They might maybe they'll just change the name to the Fausti and Munger dorms because it's <laughs> you know. Yeah. All right. What do you got? Oh well, we we sort of talked about this uh, a little bit offline, but there's been a there's been a growing shortage staffing shortage in higher education over a number of years. Um, yes. And the, there was an article recently in Inside Higher Ed that about staffing shortages hitting more specific areas like financial aid. There's a lot of institutions where they, they literally can't hire, fill all of the financial aid uh, 
employees that they need. And that can have pretty serious implications for students getting the aid that they need in order to pay for school uh, or uh, all of the things that the government requires you to audit and keep track of, or they might come in and, and have a have a more close-up look at you. But never did uh, anyone at the institutions that had these shortages sort of call the offices of the next building over and just say, hey, can you loan us somebody? Um, you know, sort of like late season baseball where you just, you know, a couple of trades for the, for the playoff run. So I thought that Michigan State sort of really took this to the next level. And uh, where they, you know, very kind looking for the altruism in faculty to come and help out in the cafeteria and serve those young minds another scoop of ice cream or, you know, a sort of faux vegan salad. Let me just, since I picked that article too, let me just read After Michigan State University closed two of its dining halls for dinner service because of a staffing shortage, administrators asked university and faculty and staff to step in. Faculty and staff from around campus are invited to sign up to assist in the dining halls. Venny Gore, Senior Vice President for Residential and Hospitality Services and Auxiliary Enterprises, who must now be questioning her job decisions, wrote in an email to university deans, directors, and chairs. We have specific needs during evenings and weekends. I ask that you share this message with your departments and units. Some faculty and staff objected to the invitation. And I'm I got to say, academic Twitterati was all abuzz. Uh, <laughs> and also, I believe your own alma mater uh, asked uh, people to do that. I believe all Hawkeyes were asked to immediately flock to the dining halls and, and, and scoop up a... Scoop right. a little bit more chicken and mushroom soup casserole for the yeah. Well, you know it's it's our 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 good Amish heritage. We're all building a barn together, right? So yeah, that's right. I would like to say for fun. listeners that we you predicted this. You, Mark Salisbury, said this would happen, <laughs> uh, and we recorded it. And I never dropped it because there are problems with recording. I think it cost too much or something like that. But the um. You said, like six months into COVID, you said we're at the point where faculty had better think about mowing the lawn for the college. Yep. And you said, but unfortunately, there is no credibility left between administrations with faculty. And I let me use the boil it down, who have infantilized, they've been infantilized so much, so long that they're not going to help out now when the when when uh, institutions really need that help. And bam, here we are, October 21st, news item, October 21st, 2021. Long lines and short fuses in dining halls. There we go. You're a prophet. Well, about, about the same time that that story was coming out, Michigan State's football team was beating the University of Michigan on a Saturday afternoon in a packed stadium. And afterwards, the students were out there burning cars. So as much as things change, some things do stay. The intellects intellects of Michigan State, yes. It's fine to see young minds at work. We talk about one other little world, college admissions, that I just thought was super fascinating. And I think it's really kind of interesting to think about. 
Okay, we'll, we'll so close with this then. Every couple of years, the anxiety about college admissions, especially going to selective, uber selective institutions, gets sort of to a certain level and somebody proposes that, you know what, to solve all of that stuff, to, we just should stop. We should just have college admissions for selective schools be a lottery. You just put in, there's a subset of schools that are in that sort of rarefied air and it's a lottery and you get into, you get into, into that group, then you're just going to get assigned. And they point to like how um, residencies work in med schools and stuff like this. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, what could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? Right. What, what could go wrong? And let's not, let's set aside all of the other things that are just bananas about that idea. But yeah. um, so it took a couple of researchers, some some higher education scholars with some quantitative chops to say, well, you know what, let's run some simulations of what this would actually look like on individual campuses and see how randomness actually might play out hmm. in the actual student body that these institutions might get. Well, shockingly, some institutions would have a suddenly all-white freshman class. Hmm. And another institution would have a reasonably diverse freshman class. And then the next year, some other institution would have an all-white freshman class. And another institution would have a reasonably diverse freshman class. This is the function of what happens when you have a lottery. <laughs> So in order to, if you were to actually engage in a lottery, writ large, right, just a big scale, like true lottery, you would find that it would almost certainly work against the goals of higher education to have a more diverse student body at each institution. So what you would have to do is to do lotteries at, across each individual type of student mm -hmm. in order to have the each school's um, diversity across race, ethnicity, and gender play out the way you wanted it to. And if you did that, you would run afoul the Supreme Court ruling about using race to determine admission. And what was so interesting about this was that when every institution does their enrollment management every year and their admissions process, they are absolutely looking to craft a class of students that are distributed in a certain way, that there are white students, that there are non-white students, that there are black students, that there are Hispanic students, that there are male and female, a reasonably even distribution. Well, the term of art is building a class. Yes. Or sculpting a class, if you're really okay, in the rarefied era. right, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And if you introduced randomness, the best sculpting you get might be Pollock. <laughs> but it's certainly not going to be the precision that every institution wants to have. What we know is actually most advantageous educationally for students is when you have a distribution of different people coming from different places and different experiences. And it just struck me as funny that it took 
a research paper and a bunch of scholarship to sort of say, yeah, that lottery idea just on its face turns out that's a pretty dumb idea. Huh. What would, uh, what would you gain? And like, I mean, I would, has anyone, well, you probably have, but I'd be curious to know how much it costs to sculpt a class. Um, and because that's, it's all, per, it's all personnel costs, I suppose. Um, yeah. so that, well, that, the, the numbers now for private institutions are the smaller schools is that it costs you about $2,500 per student that you actually enroll. So how much does it cost you for the people that you don't enroll? Well, that's all figured in. So, oh, okay. It is. That's part so of that. If you, okay. If you, if you recruit a class of a thousand students, yeah, then you've, spent $2,500 times a thousand. All right. That's a lot of money. It is. That's seven figures. Yes, it is. Right? Yeah. So you're spending a bunch of money. Enrollment management is an incredibly expensive exercise and it just keeps getting expensive, more expensive, um, hearkening back to something we talked about at the very beginning because every solution that comes out is all about adding complexity to it. We'll just mm-hmm. solve it with just a little bit more complexity, yeah. get more precise. Weber and those sociologists would be so proud. But <laughs> I have not, told you, so you fools. <laughs> they must make it narrow for you. Yeah. But it's not working. It, it, it's costing more money. Like the question you asked about how much money does it cost to sculpt the class? And the question you're going to get back from every single higher education a company, especially an enrollment management company, is how much money you got. That's right. And on that happy note, we'll end our conversation. Mark Salisbury, co-founder of Tuition Fit, founded at tuitionfit.com. Good as always Dot to org. talk to you. Dot org. Dot org. Sorry, sorry. It, it goes through when you hit com, I thought. But anyway. I know. I tuition- know. We had to do that because too many people kept saying it was tuitionfit.com. Tuitionfit.org. Mark, as always, good talking to you. Great to see you again. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.